morning, everyone. Reading from Habakkuk, chapters 1 to 2. And this is from the voice version of the Bible. How long must I cry, O Eternal One, and get no answer from you? Even when I yell to you, violence is all around. You do nothing to save those in distress. Why do you force me to see these atrocities? Why do you make me watch such wickedness? Disaster and violence, conflict and controversy are raging all around me. Your law is powerless to stop this. Injustice prevails. The depraved surround the innocent and and justice is perverted. Eternal one, take a look at the nations and watch what happens. You will be shocked and amazed. For in your days I am doing a work. A work you will never believe even if someone tells you plainly. Look, I am provoking and raising up the bitter and thieving Babylonian warriors from Chaldea. They are moving out across the earth and seizing others' homes and property in their path. That nation is terrifying people, is feared by everyone. It makes the rules and serves only its own interests. Babylonia's horses run faster than leopards, are fiercer than wolves when the sun goes down. Its horsemen rush ahead with deadly force, galloping great distances. The troops swoop down like eagles, ready to devour And Babylonia keeps on coming, hungry for violence. Hordes of determined faces on the move are like a hot east wind, scooping up captives like sand. Their leader mocks kings and ridicules those in authority. He laughs at every fortress and builds ramps of dirt against their walls to capture it. He blows through it like the wind, then presses on to the next attack. For their king, his god, is strength but he will be held responsible. Have you not existed from ancient times, O Eternal One, my holy God? Surely you do not plan for us to die. You, O Eternal One, have made Babylonia your tool for judgment. You, O Rock, have established that king as your instrument of correction. Your eyes are too pure to even look at evil. You cannot turn your face towards injustice. So why do you stand by and watch those who act treacherously? Why do you say and do nothing when the wicked swallows up one who is more in the right than he is? You made humans like fish in the sea, like creatures under no rule or authority. But the Babylonian yanks up his enemies with a hook, dragging them away with his, with his net, gathering them up like, a fish, like fish in a net. The king shrieks and shouts for joy at his catch. So he offers a sacrifice to his net, that has made him rich. The smoke of his sacrifices rises for his fishing net that has brought him success. Because of it, his table is full and his belly is fat. Will he empty and fill his net without end? Will he continue to murder the people of the world without pity? I will take my place at the watchtower. I will stand at my post and watch. I will watch and see what he says to me. I need to think about how I should respond to him when he gets back to me with his answer. The second reading is from Job 36, verses 22 to 29, from the voice as well. See, God is supreme in his power. Is there any teacher like him? Is anyone capable of overseeing his path? Who has ever said to him, you have done wrong? Remember to praise his works, which generations have celebrated in song. All of humankind has seen them and has gazed upon them 
from far away. Look, God is exalted beyond all knowing. The number of his years is vast beyond all discovery. For he draws up drops of water, distills the rain from the mist, which pours down from the clouds, dripping a sky full of water over the hulk of humanity. It is beyond comprehension, the fanning out of the clouds, the crashing thunder from his cloudy pavilion. Thanks for that lengthy Bible reading. Good morning, everyone. Good morning if you're watching on the web stream this morning. This is our third talk in the series of Habakkuk, this three-chapter dialogue, confrontation and discussion that ends in worship between Habakkuk and God. It's a powerful, punchy um, message. And as I've already said in previous messages, it's one that has been written down and recorded, I think mainly because it presents a perspective of who God is that we have to wrestle with. And secondly, because that same issue, that wrestle, the same crisis that Habakkuk had way back is the same wrestle we continue to have in the body of Christ today. God as he is. God as he truly is. We don't want to be worshipping a God that we've made in our own image, right? One that we've decided, we've taken bits and pieces from the scripture and we've gone, yeah, that's awesome. I love that God. And then neglect to actually gain this incredible perspective that is so much higher because we won't wrestle with the bits that are hard. God wants to give that kind of knowledge, that kind of experiential knowledge to all of us. And really the only question is, is will we dive in and go after that? Will we ask the Holy Spirit to push past our defenses, push past our disappointments, push past all of our fear about a God that doesn't quite make us feel comfortable? There's a bit of tension. The reward is so much greater. There's such a great reward. So let's get into this, and I'm going to whiz through quite quickly. There's, there's a few different slides. If you've got a pen um, and a blank piece of paper, you, you may want to jot down scriptures. Um, there's some slides that have multiple scriptures on it. I encourage you, I don't mind if you just whip up your, <laughs> your phone and take a, take a photo of it, and you can go back and read later. And I'll say this now. I have it in my notes as we go along, but I'll say this now. I'm picking out single verses a lot of the time, but where there's a single verse, write it down, read the whole chapter, okay? Go home and read the whole chapter. Satisfy yourself about the context and make sure that you're being a Berean, eagerly receiving the word, but going back, searching through it to see if it is the truth. So God as he is, this is the journey of Habakkuk. I'm not going to go through all the context again, uh, go back through my talks. As there's quite an extensive and important context into which this chapter, these three chapters are now uh, coming forth. But I, I do want to emphasize what Tozer says, that the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most 
portentous or significant fact about any human being is not what they may say or do, but what that person in his deep conceives God to be like. That's a powerful influence in our lives. So the Lord has a holy commitment to surface anything in our lives, conscious or unconscious thoughts that actually doesn't line up with the truth about who he is. I mean, wouldn't you like that to be? I mean, if you couldn't make everybody think the truth about you and not misinterpret you or misjudge you, you would want to do that, right? Now, God's not feverish about that like we are, but he does want the truth to be known. And he wants to bring us into the experience of that truth because he's so great. As Alistair just read from Job 36, behold, God is great and we do not know him. Ecclesiastes, I love this, I love this verse. Um, you are God in heaven and here am I on earth. Let my words be few. I want to see you, God. And I don't know you as you truly are, but I want to know you. So um, complaint number one, we, we're just going to whiz through this. We looked at this last week, but it was read again today. Here's Habakkuk's first complaint in the, contents, in the context of the Babylonians are rising up, Judah's in trouble, there's strife, there's been a, a very quick turning away from revival and uh, after Josiah's death. Uh, Habakkuk is very perturbed, very disturbed. Um, he's watched or he's you know, seen the whole Assyrian issue. He knows about that. He knows all the words that Isaiah spoke to, to the northern kingdom before they were carried off into exile. He's very concerned about what's going on. And he says, how long, God, shall I cry for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, but you do not save? Complaint number two, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate injustice? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. And he means in Judah primarily. Complaint number three, and because of this, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. God's response, look at the nations, watch Habakkuk, be utterly amazed for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. If Jeremiah came to you and said, Habakkuk, guess what's going to happen? You wouldn't believe it. If Isaiah had written about it, you wouldn't believe it. If Ezekiel came to you, you wouldn't believe it. You're going to hear it from me, Habakkuk, because it is utterly, utterly incomprehensible to you. God is about to confront Habakkuk's paradigm, shake his, his assumptions and shatter any confidence he's had in his own wisdom and understanding about, about everything, about God and who he is and what's going on. Just stop a minute and think, what would that feel like? Maybe you've had that experience where like everything you thought was true, everything that you thought was reality suddenly has been ripped out from under you and you, have, you feel like you're on sinking sand. God's assessment is that Habakkuk won't believe it unless he's heard it from God himself. This is what God said, 
This was the earth-shattering news. I am raising up the Babylonians. That ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. And in case you think I don't know the Babylonians, Habakkuk, they are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves. They promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dust. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand, guilty men whose own strength is their God. You can almost hear Habakkuk saying, so what, you're taking credit for this God? Is that what you're saying? So he comes back. Have you not existed from ancient times, O eternal one, my holy God? Surely you do not plan for us to die. You, O eternal one, have made Babylonia your tool for judgment. You, O rock, have established that king as your instrument of correction. Your eyes are too pure to even look at evil. You cannot turn your face toward injustice. Can you hear the turmoil he's in? But God... This is who you are. And it's almost like he doesn't dare to quite say, but God, do you really know the Babylonians? Why do you stand by and watch those who act treacherously? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do you say and do nothing when the wicked swallows up the one who is more in the right than he? This is telling us that Habakkuk, Definitely thinks like, I mean, he's been crying out about Judah and, and God, Judah's got massive problems and I'm really disturbed about this and I'm, and I'm quietly watching what's going on in the geopolitical scene. Surely not, God. Surely not. But he thinks that Judah, I don't know, maybe because they're God's chosen people, the covenant ones, that even though they're doing terrible things and they've turned away from God in their hearts that he wouldn't use a nation like Babylon. I mean, they're so much worse. They're just total pagans. He wouldn't use them, would he? So we discussed Habakkuk's blind spot last week, last time I spoke rather, and that is that Habakkuk didn't realize that he was committed to something that God was not committed to. He was committed to it. He had a plan. It wasn't God's plan. He had a perspective that was not God's perspective. He thought he knew what wisdom was in this situation, but it was not God's wisdom. And he's confronted with this right now. So he continues. And this, is, this, this response from him is actually a, re, a rebuke to us, by the way. It's a rebuke to us because Habakkuk, positions himself he postures himself in humility as he makes this response i will take my place at the watchtower he's talking about intercession i will stand at my post and watch i will watch and see what he says to me i need to think about how i should respond to him when he gets back to me with his answer i like that translation that's the voice translation I will watch and see what he says to me. Samuel Whitfield says this. 
difficult questions expose us to new aspects of the knowledge of God. And if we do not ask these hard questions and allow the Bible's answers to transform us, we will lack a complete knowledge of God. Right? So this morning I want to move quickly into a subject that I'm by no means going to cover in any kind of depth. You know what? My goal this morning is not to repeat not to affirm necessarily as much what you already know about God. My goal is to challenge us on the issues that we don't like to wrestle with, is to raise the scriptures that confront us with a paradigm that we put far from us. And the reason for that, I've already said, is because God wants us to experience the knowledge of him. But I also want to say this, that for many in the body of Christ, they have lapsed into dullness. They have lapsed into a passivity that is motivated by a lack of understanding of God or a fear to understand him, lest he requires something of me that I don't want to give. So we take a step back and we kind of do all the things that look great on the external, but inside we're withering up because we refuse to engage like Habakkuk. We refuse to stand at the watch place. We refuse to enter into dialogue in a posture of humility to say, God, I must understand. I must know you, God. God's sovereignty, the mystery, the majesty, and the controversy. As I said, this is not a comprehensive study, but I hope you can appreciate where we're going this morning. And my heart is to stir us all, as I've been stirred and continue to be stirred, that God is great and we do not know him, but he invites us into the storm of revelation with him. Romans 11:36 Everything comes from him, it exists by his power, it is intended for his glory or glory to him forever. Amen. In order to study the message of Habakkuk with integrity, we have to wrestle with a much bigger issue and that is the sovereignty of God. Again, a quote from Samuel Whitfield, God does not give us the freedom to alter his words. He wants us to face what he has revealed about himself, even if we find it offensive. Our offense exposes a greater issue that God wants to address. Isn't that a great statement? So will we be Berean? Acts 17, you're going to have to go and look at that yourself. Will we examine God's word eagerly in order to know him? Not a God we've made in our own image, but God as he is. As Toza says, this is a grave and significant matter. Don't switch off. I will watch and see, says Habakkuk. A humble response that rebukes our arrogance and our fear. Is God capable of evil? I could say, turn to the person next to you, but I won't. Is God capable of evil? Let's just explore this a little bit. This decision by God 
to raise up the Babylonians looked evil and it felt evil. Can you appreciate that? Yes. It was incomprehensible to Habakkuk what God was imminently going to do. And if you've read anything about the exile and looked into that and studied that and the Babylonians and the Assyrians actually before them, this is a horrifying future on the horizon. God did indeed do so. And he said so. He took credit for it. Now, before we think I've gone bonkers, let's just move across to 1 John 1.5. Let's look at this. God is good and there is no darkness in him at all. James 1.16 and 17. You know, every good gift is from above. Now, this verse says that everything that is good comes from God because God is good. 100% no question. Does it also say that every act of evil comes from Satan because Satan is evil? It actually doesn't say that. It's just addressing the issue of God is good. Everything, everything that he does is good. There's a Hebrew word, rag, and it means evil in Hebrew. The following verses are examples in the Bible of God as the perpetrator of Rag. Now, this is where I said to you, read the whole chapter. Go home, please. Go home, search the scriptures. Read the whole chapter. Here we go. Ezekiel 14, verse 21. I'm just going to read it to you. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem four dreadful judgments? Rag, sword and famine, wild beasts and plague to kill its men and their animals. Isaiah 45, 7, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the, la the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. Rag, I the Lord do all these things. Lamentations 3, 38 and 39, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Why should any living man complain when punished for his sin? Jeremiah 6.19 and Jeremiah 11.17, both of these, but 6.19. Here on earth I am bringing disaster on this people, that's rug, the fruit of their schemes. Verse 17, 11.17. The Lord Almighty who planted you has decreed disaster, rug, for you. Because the people of both Israel and Judah have done evil and aroused my anger by burning incense to Baal. There are many other verses in scripture like this. I've just given you like this much. Similar verses. So while God's judgments of which chastening is a part, and this is a quote by Bob Sorg, are experienced as evil by those under them. His works never proceed from an evil heart, for there is no evil in God. God is altogether good, and all his judgments are motivated by his goodness. Isaiah 26, 9. When your judgments, O God, come upon the earth, the peoples of the world learn righteousness. Right? 
when his judgments are in the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. God is capable of evil acts, but he is incapable of evil motives. Keep listening. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. This is to the exiles in Babylon. This is the letter. This is from the letter that God writes. He gives it to Jeremiah to give to the people. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, Rag, to give you a future and a hope. Isn't that awesome? He's writing this tenderly to the ones that he's carried into exile to chasten them. You know, Mike Bickle says Jesus uses the least severe means to reach the greatest number of people at the deepest level of love without violating our free will. Isn't that a, I think that's a great definition for sovereignty of God. I'm going to say it again. Listen to this. Jesus uses the least severe means to reach the greatest number of people at the deepest level of love without violating our free will. Is he capable of that? Absolutely. Does he love that much? Yes, he does. Had he warned Israel that they would be taken into exile by foreign nations if they refused and refused and refused and refused to turn back to him? Yes, he did. Deuteronomy 28. You can read the whole chapter. He forewarned about this. Remember Joseph? Remember all the stuff that happened to Joseph? All the terrible stuff? Sold into slavery by his own brothers. They told lies about him, told the dad, told Jacob, no, he's, he's dead, eaten by wild animals, and he ends up in, in Egypt, and then Potiphar's house, and he's framed, and he ends up in the prison, and he's forgotten there for two years, and finally, 17 years later, and there's famine in the land, and Joseph is at the right hand executing this amazing plan that had been put into action seven years earlier to feed the regions of the area and his own brothers come to him asking for food. In chapter 50, this is what he says to them. This is after they now know who he is and he says, what you meant for evil, what you intended for evil, God used it for good. This is where you want to sit there and just say, let my words be few, God. My understanding is no understanding at all. While most evil in the world 
we'd be we'd be we'd be happy to acknowledge is is demonic or evil just evil from the devil <laughs> in its origin we cannot say that evil calamities are outside the power of god's sovereignty can we I would actually be more afraid if that was the case. If the evil and the calamities and governments and all these things that, that, that are going on were outside of God's sovereign rulership, we have a lot to be afraid of, far more than believing that he's actually sovereignly involved. Okay? That's the truth. Do you remember when David, uh, this is 2 Samuel 24, right? That, that whole story, right? 2 Samuel 24, read it. It's, D- David is being disciplined by God. It's to do with the census that he took of the army and he wasn't supposed to. And Anyway, this is, God punishes. He disciplines. Same word. Are you okay with that? Yes. God disciplined David. It's interesting the way he did it because he gave David three choices. Do you remember this? Do you remember this story? And the prophets coming to and fro, Gad, to, to David and telling him about it. And and God gives David, I'm sure God did this for our benefit, right? Because we, we're reading the story years later. God gives David three options for this punishment. He says, You can choose to endure three years of famine in your land, three months of fleeing the pursuit of your enemies or three days of plague upon your land. You choose, David. Can you remember what he chose? The what? Plague. He chose the plague. Right? The prophet says to him, think it over, David, and, uh, you know, let me know what you want me to say to God, how he's going to do this. And David answered Gad, the prophet, and he says, I'm deeply distressed, but please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. Do not let me fall into the hands of men. Wow. Wow. You need to read that and meditate on that. That whole scripture, it's so powerful. David was confident in his God. This is a man who is confident in the knowledge of God. Despite he wasn't perfect. He was confident. I want to just keep pressing in here a little bit more. Just hang in with me. Because this is a big one. Is God ever the author of sickness? Exodus 4.11, the Lord said to him, this is to Moses. Moses is trying to back away, by the way, from being the person who has to go to Pharaoh and say all these things that he's probably thinking, I'm going to get killed on the spot for saying this is going to happen. So he's trying to say, I, don't, you know, I can't do this, God. And the Lord says to him, Moses, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight Or makes them blind. Is it not I the Lord? Now go. 
I'm going to help you speak and I'll teach you what to say. Little interesting comment on the sovereignty of God there. Micah 6.13. God says, that is why I will strike you down with disease. And some translations say sickness, whatever, and destroy you because of your wrongdoing. Habakkuk 3.5. This is where we are. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. Deuteronomy 32:39 I am he there is no god besides me I put to death I bring to life I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand Stay with me What about natural disasters Lots of natural disasters going on in the book of Job aren't there God says have you entered the storehouses of the snow Job have you seen the storehouses of the hail which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of wars and battle? Satan has limited and delegated power in this area as well. Read those Psalms. Read Revelation. Amos 3 verses 5 and 6. Does a bird fall into a trap, says the Lord, if no net has been set for it? Does a trap snap shut if nothing has set it off? Does the trumpet sound the alarm in the city without frightening the people? Does disaster come to a city unless the eternal one has done it? Listen, I'm reading straight out of scripture. That's all. Because we're getting into the swirl of Habakkuk's crisis now. Some people at this point will rise up and say, God is good and Satan is evil. It's not right to blame God for evil things happening. New Life, I challenge you to find in the scriptures one instance where God expresses concern about this, about being blamed for something that he didn't do. That's your challenge this week. Come back to me and I'll, I'll share it next time. If you can find one situation where someone's going, God, why are you afflicting me? La, 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 la. And God goes, hey, stop blaming me. I didn't do this to you. Find me one instance. Does it even bother God, to be honest? When you're sovereign, it shouldn't, right? God would never use the devil to accomplish his purposes. That's another thing I hear a lot. And this is exactly Habakkuk's complaint. But what about Job? What about that time when God sends a lying spirit to the prophets? You remember that one? What about Revelation? What about... The times when God is using his own angels to administer judgments. And there are the times where he like unbinds other angels who have been bound, which obviously, which says to me, they're not God's angels. They had to be restrained and then they're released to do his bidding. 
Jesus has control over the end time judgments. Sometimes released by the angels that serve him and sometimes released by demonic angels. Another question, is this God or the devil? Now, here's a little bit of light relief. Whenever trouble invades our lives, there is likely, and there certainly can be, a mixture of factors in play. God, always God. God never steps back and says, I'm not even watching this. Never. Thankfully, never. Satan, yes. Others, yes. Others can bring evil into our lives. Our own actions, yes. The consequences of our own stuff and our sinfulness and whatever. And forces of nature can also be involved. And can I say it's a nature, a a created order that is groaning. The earth is groaning. Can't wait to be restored. So we need discernment and we need a posture of humility before God. Do you remember Paul's thorn in the flesh? This is an example of God and Satan not working together but involved, if you know what I mean. It's not like they partner up to do stuff. It's not like that. That's, that's horrible. Don't even think that. It shows the sovereignty of God. What, what, what Paul says is a thorn was given to me right given to me and he's acknowledging clearly that God is the giver of this because he pleads with God to take it away but it's a, a messenger of Satan to torment him okay I was given a messenger of Satan to torment me and it was to stop him from being destroyed, actually, through pride because God had taken him into places and had released revelation that God knew was a lot for him. And so he gave him this to keep him humble. Isn't that good of God? God does this. As soon as we start to formulate these packaged ideas about him or put him inside my little box or whatever and oh now I know God that's exactly when he breaks out of it and isn't it humbling when that happens it's like wow I didn't get that right at all Job 42 11 you know all that trouble Job had you know the conversation at the start of Job that makes many of us feel really uncomfortable it was like Satan and God talking together God set the parameters, though. God set the parameters. And at the very end, when Job's brothers and sisters are gathered together, and those who had known him before all this calamity, it says they comforted and consoled Job over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. Do you know, we need to acknowledge God a lot more than we do. We like to carve it up and give him acknowledgement for certain things and not others because we struggle with this idea that he is sovereign and that somehow 
he could possibly, because our own motives are like so messed up, how could he have pure motives? How could his motives be bringing the whole earth to its final climactic conclusion? How can he do it? How can this all proceed from his holiness? How can he be completely perfect in all of these ways? How come those who are martyred in the great tribulation are crying out, just and true are your judgments, O God, as the bowls are being poured out? You are God in heaven, and here I am on earth. I'll let my words be few. Habakkuk's turmoil, yep, it might be your turmoil as well. Is God who you thought he was? Maybe when you were told about Jesus, or maybe when in your early formative years as a Christian, you were actually taught things. You heard things said about God, and that has not worked out in your life. And I challenge you not to blame anyone else. You leave that with God. You go search him out. You open the word. And remember, we are all going to stand before him to give an account. And if I didn't spend the time getting to know him and wrestling with this so that I could worship him in the way he's going to be worshipped, then that rests with us, doesn't it? God is sovereign over the nations. This is what Habakkuk learned. This was his blind spot. Oh, God is sovereign over the nations. And even evil and wicked nations can accomplish his purpose. That was what Habakkuk did not like. This was his issue. This was his blind spot. This cannot be you, God, and this cannot be right, and this cannot be just. This is not you. Isaiah 27 is a wonderful chapter. I encourage you to read it. And I've called it the long game because in this chapter, in this chapter, we get to see how God deals and and what comes out of the dealing. I'm just going to read you a few verses, verses 2 to 9. In that day, this is God, in that day, that future day that is coming, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. He's talking about Israel. I water it continually. You can extend it because we've been grafted in. You can extend it, say, this is me as well. This is the church, if you like, but this is Israel. I water it. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. I am not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I would march against them in battle and set them all on fire. Or else let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. Has the Lord struck her as he struck down those who struck her? Has she been killed as those who were killed? 
who killed her. By warfare and exile, you contend with her. With his fierce blast, he drives her out as on a day the east wind blows. By this then will Jacob's guilt be atoned for. By the dealings of the Lord God Almighty, the sovereign great I am, whose wisdom is higher than the heavens. And his wisdom is not our wisdom. His love and his faithfulness reach to the heavens. Consider him. If you could come, Ken. Consider him. Hebrews 12. Consider who? I'm drawing you now to Jesus. I'm drawing you. Consider him. When was the last time you questioned God about his dealings with Jesus Christ, his own son? When did you hold him to account? When did you say, God, that was not right? The one guiltless, sinless son of God. Have you ever questioned God about his wisdom on that? The one who left his glory at, the, at the, the right hand of the Father, who humbled himself, took on flesh for my sake, for your sake. And he, he submitted himself to the worst death possible in that time. He was crucified, dead and buried. And then the Father raised him to life. The father in whose hands the scroll, the authority of that scroll would be given and opened by the one, the only one worthy to open the scrolls of judgment and to bring all of history to its climactic conclusion. Who else is worthy except the one who was completely innocent and laid it all down for the father's sovereign will and purpose? Consider him. You know, Isaiah, Habakkuk's problem of not being able to believe this message was not just him. Isaiah 53, what does it say? Who, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who would believe it? Who would believe that the might and power of the eternal one would accomplish this? Who would believe it? We all believe it. No problem. Habakkuk's confusion. How many of us sitting in this room, how many of us are in danger of being offended at the end of the age by what God does. How many, just like the, con- the, you know, the people that Isaiah was giving his message to, how many of us are just like that? We're going to miss it. We're not going to believe it. We're in danger 
of being offended at the end of the age by what God does. How many of us are, are embarrassed by his leadership of the earth already? Oh, no, 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 that's not God. No, 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 what are you talking about? Don't listen to that person. We're already telling people what God has and hasn't done. Let my words be few, eh? Consider him who prayed, not my will but yours be done. Consider him the author and perfecter of our faith. In faithfulness, he will present us faultless to the Father. Will we worship him? Will we trust him? Will we say like the psalmist, Psalm 119, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Doesn't mean that we don't discern. Doesn't mean that we let the enemy stomp all over us. But if we are blinded to who God is and how he works, how can you even know what's going on? It's when the truth dwells richly in you that you can discern what's going on. And we take up the appropriate stance and the appropriate weapons at that point, lest we be wrestling God himself. God gives that discernment. He gives it. He trains us. We might get it wrong a few times. probably will. That's okay. Keep your heart in a humble posture before him. God is forming a people in the nations of the earth who know how to worship him in the greatest of trouble. They are confident as his eternal purposes unfold. That's going to be us. As we pursue him, let's just say, let's just put everything down, any preconceived ideas, any assumptions, we all have them. God if you could tell me anything right now, and I, I was willing to hear it, what would you say to me? Consider him. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down right hand of the throne in heaven. Consider him. No wonder Job said, before my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you and I repent in dust and ashes. That's an appropriate response when you've seen the Lord. And all the weight all the stuff that Job was reacting to, the sort of this, the guilt, the sense of condemnation, which causes that accusation and what's going on, God, and this can't be right, I've done nothing wrong. All that stuff drops away. In the, it just drops away in the light of the glory of who he is. It just drops away. 
my heart comes alive again. Is your heart, has your heart been dull and wasting away? I challenge you this morning, there's a reason for it. And God is not the one who's withdrawn from you. And he wants to be known. He wants to be known by you. But he wants to be known as he is. Jesus. I'm just going to let you open this now. Take the bread. Drink the juice. And Ken, if you would just sing the first couple of verses of this beautiful song, It Is Well. Some of you, hands up if you know the story behind this song. You know the story. Okay. You know. If you don't know, go look it up. An incredible story birthed this hymn. It is well with my soul. He gives and takes away, but it is well with my soul. Jesus, we thank you that you have made it well with our souls. Jesus, this morning and every other Sunday morning, we drink and we eat and we say thank you and we rarely think that you would call us in to this kind of life. We rarely think it was unjust. We're more than happy, God, for you to be sovereign over this decision that has saved my life. God, help us. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. And give us willing hearts to love you strongly. Break off the dullness, God. Because of stuff that's gone on inside of us. That we don't want to acknowledge. We don't want to talk about it. Jesus, have mercy on us today. And deliver us from our blindness. In the same way you delivered Habakkuk, because then his heart was set free to worship. We haven't got there yet in the, in the story, God. But I know that you're drawing us into this world so that we can be free to worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen.